electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. It's a rough day on Wall Street yet again, but still having a negative day across the board. Three big issues, Fed inflation, Russia, Ukraine, and COVID lockdown in China. Snap shares down 41%. Everything from real estate to social media now seems to be at risk. Profit and sales warnings from companies are spawning recession fears. Tech has, to say the least, been one of the most volatile parts of the market. What comes next? Welcome to this CNBC special, Trading Tech. I'm John Fort. Jim Cramer has the evening off. Tonight, tech stocks tumbling. A warning from one social media company sparking worries across corporate America, putting nearly a half a trillion dollar dent in the market. Why Snap's macro shockwave has investors concerned about a lot more than just online advertising. The Dow swinging 650 points but ending the day higher. The Nasdaq ending the day down 271 points, trading 31% below its all-time high. Well, is this the sign of a shakeout, or could more pain in the tech space be coming? Tonight, we will talk to CNBC experts and investors to find out what the tech route means for your money. We're going to start with the big move today. Snap shares tumbling 43% for its worst day since going public, dragging other social stocks down with it. Julia Borston's here for a rundown of those names and what it means for the NASDAQ going forward. Julia. Well, John, Snap's 43% tumble dragging down the rest of the social stocks. Meta shares ending the day down over 7%. Pinterest down 24%. And Twitter shares down by 5.5%. The other ad-supported names suffering as well. Amazon and Alphabet both ending the day lower. Alphabet by 5%. Snap raising red flags for the whole sector in its warning, saying, quote, the macro environment has deteriorated further and faster than we anticipated when we issued our quarterly guidance last month. Snap is now projecting revenue growth of less than 20% in the quarter. That's down from the 44% revenue growth that it saw at the beginning of the year. 
We do expect other digital advertising um, companies to report ad revenue softness. This is from Jeffries saying that they think it is highly unlikely that the weakness is isolated to Snap, and they believe that they that macro conditions will impact all digital ad names. Now, with that commentary from Jeffries and other analysts, the decline in digital ad names has dragged down the entire Nasdaq. It is off two, nearly two and a half percent today, and it is down. 28% so far this year. Now, tomorrow, Meta, Twitter, and Amazon are all holding their annual shareholder meetings, and they'll likely face some questions from concerned investors after those stocks have suffered so much this year. John? Yeah, that's pretty certain, Julia. Thank you. While digital ad spending is a headwind for companies like Snap, Meta, and Google, there's also a broader digital media story here. Subscription giant Netflix plans to create a lower-cost ad-based option for its service in a surprise for the streaming sector this year. Netflix has been sliding all year since reporting disappointing subscriber growth for two quarters. The stock's now down 70% since January began. So are tech companies stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to advertising? Let's bring in Jim Stewart, columnist for The New York Times, a CNBC contributor. Jim, uh, you know, marketing spend when the economy slows down is one of the first things to suffer. But there's also questions about the health of the consumer here. What should investors really take away from what we've seen so far? Well, there, there's some there's so many headwinds coming from so many directions at the moment. Uh, there has been a dizzying change of sentiment, which you can see in these you know incredible Stock declines are kind of reminiscent of the, the tech bubble of, you know, some time ago. But I think um, there is no question that the, these were all growth stories. They were predicated, predicated those prices on very high growth rates of both revenue, subscriber base, which, of course, are related. And those growth assumptions are now not only are they being brought into question, they're being slashed. The, the subscriber growth. Uh, which we saw very pronounced at Netflix has gone in, in their case has gone into reverse. I mean, that is a shocking change from the aggressive numbers that people were putting on there for subscriber growth. And with that goes revenue. You know, the fact that Netflix is now talking about trying to have an advertiser model is not that comforting when you think it sounds like it was something they said they would never do. They would never need to do. And it kind of hints at kind of desperation there. But you're seeing elsewhere um, the subscriber growth numbers are looking shaky at the very time that digital advertising spending, because of the broader economy, is likely to go down. So these stocks are getting hit with two kind of broad reversals on key assumptions that were holding up their stock prices. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jim, when you're buying a stock, for the folks out there, when you're buying a stock, generally speaking, you're buying a share of future profits, right? You're, 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 it's based on what's going to happen in the future. Now, the streaming landscape, you know, Netflix, Disney Plus, all this stuff, that we, even a lot of the social media landscape, never really seen a recession before. We don't know that we're going to have one, but there's lots of talk about it right now. What are the key assets historically that media companies of all types need to have in order to thrive in the future? So if you're placing a bet, if you're buying a stock now, what is it really about? Is it about engagement? Is it about the quality of the content? Is it about just overall growth of the audience? Uh, well, growth is the key metric, but a key to growth um, also is what kind of competition they face in the landscape. 
And I think there you do see um, some significant differences in the media companies. Um, and the reason that's so important is if you, if you don't have growth, you know, if you're not going to get greater scale uh, and, and large revenues that way, then you've got to somehow increase margins. And you can increase margins if you have pricing power, and you have pricing power if you don't face too much competition. And I've long felt that Netflix is facing a lot of competition. The streaming area is fiercely competitive now. The spending rates that have been going on there with Disney Plus and their Amazon with such deep pockets, Netflix, Apple, uh, you know, everybody throwing money at this. And yet there is really no competitive advantage that any of these streaming platforms have. And you can argue Disney has some intellectual property, but, you know, everybody likes to talk about, oh, they've got a network effect. But I, I don't see it. I don't, you know, I think what we've seen in the subscriber reversal at Netflix is it's really only as good as its latest hit. And that's the same old story that Hollywood has grappled with forever, which has made movie making a relatively low margin business. So at the other scale, I'd say you have like a meta, hmm. a Facebook, you have an alphabet. They do have significant network effects and competitive advantages that should give them greater pricing flexibility. So, Jim, you talk about network effects and you talk probably most importantly about what the differentiator is for these companies. So for my final for my final (laughs) question to you, let me zero in on the technology here. What is the most significant technology advantage that one of these media companies can have, whether they're social media whether they're streaming, is it the technology that's being used to make the content? Disney's got this, you know, huge wall, digital wall that they're using to make shows like The Mandalorian. They're able to make content, high quality content more efficiently. Or is it the ability to target ads or, you know, as part of that, knowing more about individuals in your audience to make more money off of them? Is there a technology advantage to be had here? Not in the strictest sense. I think the technology can be replicated. We, we saw that, you know, with streaming itself, the technology, you know, many competitors have come up with it. The competitive advantage in social media has been that, you know, this network effect where, you know, the reason Facebook is so successful is you want to be on the, the social platform where all your friends are and your friends want to be on the same one where you are. Uh, it's, you know, the classic, you know, eBay situation where you want to sell on the auction site that has the most buyers and you want to buy on the auction site that offers the most products. But having a network effect, I have to give credit here to my colleague, Jonathan Nee at Columbia Business School. He wrote a great book called The Platform Delusion. Mm. Just because you have that doesn't mean it's going to lead to greater, greater profits. And that's it the might, key. Or it might not. Yeah. So I think that's the key here. And you've got to look at each one individually. Right now, they're all being dragged down indiscriminately. But I think some are going to prove to be more resilient than others. All right. Jim Stewart, The New York Times. Thank you. Now, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, the wild moves in the tech stocks having an impact on Wall Street today. The Nasdaq tumbling more than 2 percent. Stocks still able to close off their worst level. The Dow bouncing back from a 515-point drop. Wow. Tech sector has been beaten down this year. The Nasdaq down almost 30 percent since January. Individual big tech stocks have been under pressure as well as tech faces a combination of high valuations and rising interest rates. But let's think here about value, whether this slide downward is just a correction, bringing multiples back to what these companies are actually worth, or whether we're seeing a bursting bubble reminiscent, dare we say it, the dot-com era of 20 years ago. Let's bring in Oswath Demodoran, 
professor of finance at NYU Stern School of Business, and Dan Morgan, senior vice president and portfolio manager at Sonovus Trust. Uh, welcome to both of you. Aswan, you. so um, we talk about valuation, really just how much is a stock worth? How much should you pay for it? Um, Apple behaves differently in this market from a Netflix, different from an Intel or a Snowflake. How far from the typical range of how stocks have been valued have we gotten? And are we back to normal yet for the most part? I think the big difference between 2001 and now is tech now is the biggest segment of the market by far. And within tech, you have a huge variation in companies. I mean, uh, just last week, I broke down tech companies by age, by corporate age. It's amazing how much of a difference there is between the youngest tech companies and the oldest tech companies. In fact, I think some of the oldest tech companies are among the best value investments in the market. The youngest tech companies, which have negative earnings, negative cash flows, very dependent on external capital, are getting slaughtered in this market. But isn't there anything in the middle? Dan, let, let me throw this one at you. Is there anything in the middle, uh, kind of, right, that's maybe younger but has a solid business, its stock is way down, and so the value it might actually be there? I think, in a, you know, you take the Netflix and the Ubers in the world, they're, they're in the middle ground, but both have significant problems with their business models. In the good times, we don't notice. Netflix is always what I call a hamster wheel model, which is you create more content, you sign up on users, you get a higher market price, and you go out and create even more content. And the question, even in the good times, was how do you get off this hamster wheel? Mm. We're discovering the weakest links in the business models at some of these mid-level mid companies. And I think we're going to find out which of these companies are capable of fixing the limits in their business models and which ones are going to get shaken out. Okay, Dan Morgan. Dan Morgan, to you then, how do you look for value in this market? Is it just a matter of looking at the big, older companies and finding safety there? Or is it worth holding your nose and, uh, you know, taking a flyer on some of these younger growth names that have been beaten down? Well, John, we uh, in the Sonoma's Trust Company, we tend to focus on the more mature models. We didn't really engage in some of these more aggressive IPOs that came out uh, since two th or 2020 after the pandemic. Uh, so we pretty much focus on companies that have been around a much longer period of time. I think it'd be kind of tough at this point, um, John, to kind of take a risk on some of those stocks. Uh, you know, we've had a tremendous devaluation as we've seen uh, inflation start to move up. There's a inverse relationship between inflation and P.E. ratios. If we go back and look at times where we've had very, very uh, high inflation, like back in the 70s, we had very low multiples. So those stocks really get hurt, uh, as you were mentioning before, because they have unproven business models. So uh, we would tend to focus on probably the more mature companies and trying to find value in them, hmm. opposed to dipping our, you know, foot in the water, taking a big risk on a stock that might have just gone public in the last two years, a but tech what name about, what that does about, have an unproven model. What about a snowflake, for example, right? It's been growing. It's been more than doubling year over year. Um, you know, it, it has, uh, you know, strong customer base, typical trajectory for what tends to be a successful uh, software company. But boy, that stock is way down. At what point, if not now, do you look at a company like that and say, maybe it's worth buying? Right, John. Snowflake's a tough name just because it, I don't believe they have earnings. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, unless they're adjusted. Uh, and in terms of your value, it would be simply based on a price to sales or the growth of the sales and, and their future ability in their market. 
Again, uh, I hate to disappoint you, but we tend to focus more on the mature names. Uh, Snowflake would be something that we would wait to eventually become profitable before we started to really take a hard look at it. We own other names in that space, like an Adobe or something of that nature uh, in the software area. But uh, Snowflake is something that, because it isn't profitable, we tend to veer away from. Now, I ask because they are reporting results in just a few hours. Not personally disappointed. Of course, I don't personally invest in individual stocks, but trying to get the viewers, as always, the best intelligence. Oswath, Dan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we're just getting started on this CNBC special, Trading Tech. Up next, take a look at shares of Zoom. The stock is hovering near pre-pandemic levels. We're talking to the very first investor in the company about how he's approaching this market. We'll be back right after this. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to this CNBC special trading tech. The whole tech space is under pressure. Uh, Which names will rebound and which will stay down? For more on the shifting tech landscape, let's bring in two VC legends, Roger McNamee, uh, and the, he's the co-founder of Elevation Partners and an early Facebook investor, and Bill Tai, co-founder and chairman of Treasure Data. Bill was also the first seed backer to commit to funding Zoom, which overall has done quite well, though it has been uh, a pandemic sufferer thus far. Guys, here you are. Thanks for joining us uh, this evening. Bill, I want to start with you because we just had a couple of very skeptical folks on valuation say stay away from anything that's not profitable. But 
everything that's worth buying pretty much is unprofitable at some point. So how do you sift through as an investor at this time and figure out what's worth it? You know, I think the comment about focusing on companies with profitability does matter. I think we're in a period where, as I think our your last uh, guest pointed out, uh, we, we have, I think, a multivariate equation where you have rising rates affecting the multiple, which is the amplifier on the baseline, which is earnings. A lot of the companies coming into this uh, recent period had no earnings. There are a few that do, but they are all getting treated equally badly. I think all of the high flyers are down anywhere from 50 to 80%, including companies like Zoom. And you probably saw from their numbers yesterday, they are more than just profitable. You know, that's a company that uh, had $500 million of free cash flow on just over a billion dollars of earnings, you know, 37% operating margins. I mean, Microsoft has 34% operating margins. So, you know, Zoom is in a special class that continue to grow. Uh, so I think, you know, sift through all that rubble and find the couple of gems and, uh, you know, pick, pick those days where the market is selling off hard, load your boat and just kind of wait and see what happens. Okay. Okay. Now, Roger, it's good to see you. Um, you, you've been trying to be sober about this market for a long time. And so that's why I, I want to come to you this way. When the market's riding high and things are going up and up and up, people are all like, oh, well, buy everything, buy based on growth. But then when things are tanking like they are today, you get a bunch of people saying, oh, only buy the stuff that's profitable, which means you wouldn't buy half of the IPOs, right, ever. Which, But now they're trading at pre-IPO level prices. So Tell me what you think the most important narrative is for the tech markets right now. What's happening and how should investors use that perspective to decide what to buy and what to sell? So, John, I think that we have to approach the current environment as a real bear market, possibly a generational bear market. So it's entirely possible that we're nowhere near the bottom. Maybe we are at the bottom, but it's more likely that we have a long way to go. In that context, the only thing that investors should focus on now is what is the portfolio I want to own when the next bull market begins? Now, the point about owning things that are profitable, in this context, it's because the market has allowed a lot of really silly business models to come public, ones that really are probably never going to be profitable. For instance? So profits are... Well, I, I think the, the ride-sharing companies would be an example. I think a lot of the fintech companies are examples. There are so many on the list. If you look at the, the, the stocks that have come down the most, there are many of them with very suspicious business models. I mean, Upstart, which is down like, what, 90%? Hmm. That business model is completely unproven. It may vaporize for all we know. Peloton, the, so many of those Bikes were sold on a buy now, pay later model that we're not entirely sure how many of them are going to come back. Right. And so you've got to see issues like that are out there for companies. But on the <clears> other <throat> side, you have exactly what Bill described uh, with Zoom or with DocuSign. These are profitable companies. I think at some point you want to own things like that. Okay. But I do think it's okay to be looking at the things that are unprofitable. Okay. So I want, to get a, I want to get another round of questions into you guys. Then Bill... We've talked about what some of the silly business models might be. What are the really prescient business models that have come forth in the past five years, the most important technologies that we've seen, whether it has to do with AI and big data, whether it has to do with something else that investors should say, well, in that next uh, bull market, this company's got key technology I want to own. 
You know, I think that is a great way to look at it uh, above and beyond just profitability, because I, I agree with Roger. You want to be very careful and, and uh, uh, stay away from the, quote, suspicious business models. But there are going to be a couple of areas where there are good companies that are investing, forward investing in growth, so are not yet profitable, but are in the right area. In the last big, big tech down cycle, one of those, a uh, great example of that would have been something like an Amazon that didn't have profits for many, many, many years, or a Netflix, for example. And I think the the tides are shifting now towards, uh, you know, obviously some of the SaaS models, like the DocuSigns and Zooms, and then the companies that support those kinds of companies, like uh, the DevOps companies, like, you know, mm. say like a Datadog, you right. know, Datadog, uh, some of the extraordinary high flyers are also smashed down. They are not profitable, but they are in the right place for kind of a five-year time horizon. Yeah, the bargain bin overflows. Unfortunately, we've got to leave it there. Bill, Roger, thank you. Uh, Bill, Ty, and Roger McNamee. Now, don't go anywhere. Much more ahead on the CNBC special, Trading Tech. As we head to break, a look at some of the best and worst performing NASDAQ stocks today. We're just talking about Zoom up 5%, O'Reilly Auto, Electronic Arc up a bit, and American Electric also up about 2%. On the downside, Dexcom down 11%, Splunk, Datadog, Pinduoduo, and DocuSign, which we just talked about. We'll be right back. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome back. Our next guest weathered the dot-com bust with a front row seat. Renee Lassert was trying to raise capital for another company he founded, Payscale, back in 2000, just after the dot-com bubble burst. He was rejected by 79 venture capitalists before finding an investor. So what similarities is he seeing to the tech reckoning we're facing today? Well, Bill.com founder and CEO Renee Lassert joins us now. Renee, thanks for joining me. I specifically wanted to talk to you in this tech special because of your perspective. So... How are you differently prepared uh, this time around? And how similar are the markets to what we saw 20-ish years ago? That's a great question, John. And thank you for having me on. Always happy to talk to you and just share my perspective. It's, it really is different uh, for me. I mean, one, I've got a lot more experience under the belt. I've been doing this over 22 years now. But one of the things that you know, I think is not different 
is that when you focus on fundamentals, uh, the value creation happens. Sometimes the value assessment might be at a different timeline, but the value creation happens. And I think what was happening back in 99, 2000, uh, there were companies that didn't necessarily have good business models. And you look at our business model, you know, we're delivering over 182% year-over-year growth, 74% organic growth, and doing that with minimal losses. And so I think the differences uh, are pretty, pretty different. Uh, now we're talking about some macro factors that can impact all, uh, all of us across the globe, whether it's the geopolitical situation or you know, kind of the inflationary pressures that were starting to, to, to rear their head. All of that is different than what I saw was happening in 2000 or 2008. So I think the focus on the fundamentals is the most important thing. And that perspective I have is, you know, that if you keep doing that, you create the value in the long term. And that's what matters. Well, but everybody's got different fundamentals that they say to focus on. We just had somebody say, oh, well, stay away from anything unprofitable, which I you know, might argue, well, you know, lots of things that end up being huge are unprofitable at some point. So tell me, from your perspective as a founder and CEO, with your company, what are you investing in resource-wise in this down market that you think is going to be a good investment? I think the most important thing any business leader can do is to really focus on understanding their business model and making sure that the investing that they're doing is balanced. There's always an opportunity for growth, and you have to balance that opportunity with how you manage your cash flow. And that's something that I've, I think I learned from my parents. You know, I'm a fourth-generation entrepreneur but just something that sometimes I think people forget. And so when you focus on creating that balance of driving growth so that you can create the value for the SMBs, you know, the market that we serve, we have 150,000 businesses roughly that are on our platform. When you serve that many customers out of you know, 6 million businesses that could use a service like ours, that's the value creation. So there's always a balance. And what we've done in the past year, which we feel really good about, is delivered half of the losses that we were guiding towards at the beginning of the year. And so the opportunity is always understanding your business model and driving the growth uh, responsibly. And, you know, and also, you know, when we think about what we're focused on, we're building a multi-billion dollar business that is going to be profitable. We're very committed to that. And we have all the tools to be able to do that. Okay. So what do you see happening in Silicon Valley right now uh, compared to previous downturns? What are the questions that you're getting from younger CEOs? And what are the different questions that you're getting from investors now versus what they were asking two years ago? Yeah, I think that the question in general uh, is I think everybody's trying to understand it, which is why it's great that you're doing this show to kind of highlight different perspectives and experiences, because it is all new. It's happening rather quickly, like COVID did. You know, what we learned with COVID is that business was resilient and businesses were able to really connect and find ways to adapt. Uh, and so, you know, when I think about the, you know, what it is I hear from people in the Valley, uh, the, the private valuation, you know, reset is something that a lot of people are talking about. It doesn't, isn't something that really concerns me because what we're focused on is delivering the value for SMBs across the country. Like I said, 6 million businesses. And so, you know, what they're focused on is not so much, you know, the macro factors. The, the small businesses are focused on the micro. I could give you one example. I talked to a customer yesterday called About Golf. They do simulation to help people work on their golf game. And they are focused on supply chain constraints because mm -hmm. they have parts coming in from all over the world. And they are focused you know, on the, the wage pressures that are coming, but they're growing and they're adapting. And the way they did that is they divided their implementations into two so they could actually do it faster when they had it. And so that resiliency, I think, is what I think is going to be true across the economy. And it'll happen in the Valley, too. It's just we're kind of in that moment this month right now where everybody's trying to figure out what that is. 
Yeah. Um, and as far as we go, you know, the focus we get is always understanding the growth that we're able to drive. When you have growth like we have, investors want to understand that. They want to make sure that we're being responsible and thoughtful about the the the, the money that we're deploying, the capital we have. We have $2.8 billion in cash on the balance sheet, $1 billion net cash. And so deploying that responsibly, that that's the questions. And by the way, that's the questions they always ask us. All right. Yeah, uh, I guess if business software can deliver that resiliency, then um, that's what will provide the value. Bill, thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care. CEO of, uh, sorry, Rene LeCert, the CEO of Bill.com. Still ahead on the CNBC special, trading tech, NVIDIA results on tap tomorrow after the bell. The stock's selling off today, but I'm talking to an analyst who has three big ideas in the semiconductor industry worth considering. And from cybersecurity to enterprise software, could a challenging macro environment weigh on future growth? I am talking to former VMware Chief Operating Officer Sanjay Pune. And futures are open, very thin trading at this hour, but here's an early look at the action. Huh, well, could go either way. We'll go right back. Welcome back to the CNBC special, Trading Tech. Check out NVIDIA getting caught up in today's tech sell-off. The Chickmaper reports earnings tomorrow after the bell. But where does the rest of the semiconductor sector stand? Well, let's bring in Vivek Arya, Bank of America Securities, Senior Semiconductor Analyst. Vivek, uh, thanks for being here. So I know that you think there are bargains in chips. These stocks keep getting hammered. So tell me about the framework you think investors should use to decide what's most valuable. You talk about the the three C's, cloud, cars, and CapEx. Uh, yeah, good evening, John. Thank you for having me. I think the to set the context, uh, there is a disconnect between uh, what semiconductor companies are seeing and what investors are perceiving. So semiconductor companies are seeing very strong demand across a range of end markets, cloud, enterprise, uh, 5G, automotive, industrial. But investors are perceiving that this is merely just the calm before the storm and that we are headed into a recession because of whether it's rising rates, whether it's China lockdowns, or whether it is um, you know, other uh, geopolitical concerns. So I don't think the debate is whether or not we will have a recession. I think the more important question is, have the stocks already priced in a historically average uh, recession? And number two, what are the hard catalysts uh, for a turnaround? And when we think about that in terms of valuations, from peak to trough, uh, the SOX index uh, valuation, the forward P multiple is down about 36%. And in prior downturns, it was only down about 27%. And that's why we think that we have priced in a historically average uh, recession. And now it's a question of catalysts, which in our mind, is going to be a recovery of, of the easing of the lockdowns in uh, China, and it's going to be the resilience in uh, demand across data center and enterprise and, and other markets. So hmm. that's the framework that we are using, okay. um, right? I think then leads to resilience in, in different end markets for semis. So um, e- even if this is a medium-length recession, you think that that's to some extent priced in, but then what bounces back most strongly. Uh, what are the areas where certain companies have an edge, have a, a, the right technology or the early advantage that you think is going to put them in a better position chip-wise? Sure, absolutely. And, and to your point, I think semiconductors uh, anticipate recessions. We had a downturn in calendar 19, but the stock, uh, stocks went down in calendar 18. 
And then in the 19, when we had the downturn, the SOX index actually went up 90%. Now, in terms of which areas are going to be very resilient, we say follow the money. If you set aside the companies for a second, look at areas where there is strong innovation, where there is strong expansion of content, and those are the three Cs. It's cloud computing and AI. It's automotive, which I think is having an iPhone moment in that every car wants to have features such as uh, uh, electrification and advanced driver assist systems, and there is rising chip complexity. So cloud, cars, CapEx, I think those are the three big areas where once we get past some of these macro fears, I think we will see investors start to re-engage from a stock perspective. And we got it on the screen. You like uh, KLA, Global Foundries, On Semi, NVIDIA, AMD, Marvell, among others. Broadcom's been in the news. Uh, thank you for that perspective, Vivek Arya. Thank you, John. This CNBC special trading tech continues in just a moment. Coming up, is there a silver lining to be found anywhere in tech? One reason for optimism may already be here. And final thoughts on megatech and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. When we return on CNBC. Welcome back. Snap's warning certainly sent shockwaves across social media stocks today, but could the giants of tech provide refuge in the space? Let's bring in our Steve Kovac to help shed some light on whether Apple and Microsoft, the biggest names in consumer and enterprise software, can give investors hints of what's to come. Uh, Steve, thanks. Now let's talk because Microsoft has a developer conference build that's been going on. Apple just announced some details of their annual conference, WWDC. This is where the next thing gets built. And Apple famously built and rolled out the iPod right in the dot-com bust. So some good things can happen. Yeah, some good things can happen. It's typically not a hardware event, WWDC. You've got to keep that in mind. It's usually uh, the new versions of iOS and their various software platforms. But... They did tease a new Mac computer uh, at the last event saying, look, we're going to be done with Intel pretty soon. We might have that new pro computer with your favorite thing, the M chips that they're (laughs) running. Uh, At the other hand, there's more and more uh, reading between the lines here that the uh, headset could be coming. And this is this metaverse, whatever you want to call it, AR, VR, mixed reality headset. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apple really can set the tone here. And especially if they announce at a developer's conference, that's a signal saying, hey, developers, let's get you to write your apps for this thing now and build it so when it's ready to come out several months from now. And that's what I'm thinking about is because whether it's uh, an AR headset or whether it's a chip like the M1 that gives them an edge over competitors, if they can open up new markets, right? I mean, think about the, you know, the, the billions of dollars that are made off of apps in the app store and Apple, right? right? That, that sure would help the economy. What are the other hints, say even from Microsoft, on what they're focused on and what markets they might be able to open up that investors should be thinking about? Yeah, what's really cool about Microsoft, at least with these headsets and metaverse stuff, is they're selling it right now. Uh, one, one of their announcements today was, I was talking to a Microsoft executive about this earlier last week, was it's, they call it the industrial metaverse. Now, you're going to kind of roll your eyes at that, I know. But what this is, is the HoloLens, which has been out for 
five or six years now, they put them on the factory floor and, and workers on factory floors can actually use that to help guide them for repairs or if they need to spin up new production lines. So today they announced that Kawasaki is one of the new customers of this. And believe it or not, one of the more recent customers was Heinz. So mm. ketchup being made in the metaverse. Well, I'll so tell you really what, happening. I'm not going to roll my eyes <laughs> because even though they use the word metaverse, if it's on a factory floor, that's not the metaverse, no. right? That's the Internet of things. Right. And out of uh, Qualcomm's results recently, their IoT business was up 61%. Heard from others who say that's growing. So the idea of getting data from places where you don't usually and using that to streamline operations, that could be an area to help stoke business growth. And, and, and the, they see the HoloLens as kind of a hub for all that. So they have all these IoT devices on uh, throughout the factory floor, or, or they can you know, change it for whatever they're building or making. And the heads-up display in front of your face kind of gives you that information. So if you're a floor manager and you know something's broken across the floor, you can, you can identify it faster and get it fixed. Okay. Or if you need to call a repair guy in, they can come in virtually instead of just having them come in. So it's kind of like the hub for all that stuff you're talking about. Now, quickly, they were just able to close on Nuance, which yes. is sort of speech technology that feeds into AI, but that company is strong in medical, right? Say, yeah. so, so how much are those kind of industry-specific solutions perhaps feeding into what might uh, help customers grow. Yeah, and that was that was a whole thing. That's I mean, if you've ever been to a doctor's office, you're still running, what, Windows XP or something sometimes. <laughs> so Nuance was a huge acquisition for them. I guess it started last year, and they just closed it a couple months ago. And th they did a really cool demo of that today in Bill, just how you go in, talk to your doctor, and the conversation's being recorded, HIPAA compliant, of course. Right. And that makes it so much easier to know what you're communicating with your doctor, they can go in and, and pick out what they need to take better care of you. So that's a wow. huge advantage. Uh, and Nuance does a lot of other things, but specifically but it's we, great for medical. Yeah, know for sure there's a lot of value in efficiency in healthcare. Exactly. We can definitely squeeze some that's dollars the That's a Microsoft out of there. story. Efficiency in the factory floor, efficiency in the doctor's office. Yeah. Steve, thank you. Thanks, John. Steve Kovac. And we are just about 10 minutes to the news with Shepard Smith. Shep is going to have every angle covered of the developing story, the tragic elementary school shooting in Texas. Heartbreaking news. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tech stocks are getting weighed down by a challenging macroeconomic environment. From the Fed to innovation, are these companies prepared to weather the storm? Let's bring in former VMware Chief Operating Officer Sanjay Poonin to discuss Sanjay, we were just on the phone uh, yesterday afternoon. I I'm really hoping you can give me a couple of insights and viewers, a couple of insights into what enterprise software, what business software can really do in this environment, because there were all of these high hopes and expectations based on what it was able to do during the pandemic. And now we've seen stock prices plummet. What's the most important thing those companies are doing now? John, thanks for having me. First off, let me just say I'm devastated by the news of the shooting in Texas and my thoughts and prayers goes out to all the families affected. Uh, coming to your question, I feel like I'm sort of, you know, I wrote a blog earlier this year about my 10 predictions of 2022 at the start of the year. And I feel rereading it, I'm kind of witnessing a John Ford on the other hand moment uh, <laughs> because many of my predictions have not come true and then some are. But I think as it relates to enterprise software, I reinforce what one of my uh, friends and mentor, Roger McNamee, said earlier in the show. Pick the companies you want to own if we're entering a bear market coming out of this. 
uh, and take a, a point in time where you want to own them. And obviously, at the big market cap level, Microsoft is a very strong enterprise software name. They've grown from strength to strength. Today, um, you know, Intuit is a company I like. They announced earnings. I mean, when you have a 25, 30% growth business at 45 to 50% margins and they see the expectations, that's a good name. So I think when you look at category leaders that are in this sort of rule of 30 plus, uh, and if you're not uh, profitable, it's not to say you should only be investing in profitable companies, but if you're not profitable, you need to have a path to profitability. So talk about that path to profitability. We talked earlier in the show about Snowflake. Uh, there are other companies, Zoom, which I know you know well, that's different. Of course, it, it is profitable. But some of these pandemic darlings, how do you put a filter on that and, and decide whether it's worth investing? Yeah, Zoom's obviously, you know, kind of growth has slowed down from like 300% and now double digits, 12, 15%, but it's highly profitable. And if they can really build out a unified communications platform beyond just video uh, collaboration, that's a good business. And, you know, uh, they are a category leader in that space. Uh, I think Snowflake's a slightly different story. They're investing heavily at this stage. It's a big uh, analytics market, but you can kind of see that path. Now, you know, is a billion-dollar ARR business growing at, I think, 50 60% now worth uh, $100 billion, what they were, you know, 8, 12 weeks ago? Probably not, but at the corrected rates, I still think it's an enormous growth business. And in their category, I only hear about Snowflake, Databricks, and uh, Google BigQuery. So you could see them continue to take share. Uh, so I think that's the way I would think about it. I think the companies that you can't see a path to profitability ever, and they've got sort of this endless invest in sales and marketing, um, you know, I think the correction hasn't ended for them. Well, uh, that's a good place to leave it, giving us perspective uh, on what we've seen so far, what we might see, and a good reminder to uh, investors, even folks who have been operating in this space, don't get it right every time when we're making predictions in a year like this. Sanjay Poonin, thank you. Thank you, John. That's going to do it for us tonight on this CNBC special, Trading Tech. The news with Shepard Smith begins now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.